So how you doing, man? I'm doing good. Uh, I am uh, considering a dog. Today is the day I actually consider it. What? Well, yeah, I've I've seen this dog twice. He's a uh, it's a species uh, or breed. I've never heard a species. <laughs> I guess it's, it's dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Canis, too much paleo nerding for you. What is it? Canis familiaris. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Doggy. A doggy. A doggy. Yeah, it's called a McNab Shepherd. Also, oh, you're going for a purebred, not a no. Rescue dog? No, or no, he's or he's totally a, a rescue dog in a shelter that was going to be put okay. down. He's a year and seven months old. I haven't made the commitment yet. It is a you know a 10, 15 year commitment. Easily, and you do you get to like test drive the dog? Uh, do you go for yes. a walk and hang out? Yeah, I've hung out with the dog twice already, and super super smart. This breed is a breed from Northern California. What? Yeah. Of all places uh, in the world, he looks kind of like a, an Australian cattle dog, Labrador, Shepherd mix. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and, super, uh, super smart. Are they bred to be friendly? Yes, they're bred to be uh, herding dogs, really. So that means they're smart. Okay. And uh, uh, yeah, so I just have to literally, today's the day I, I turn that switch and make that commitment. So I'll let you know next week. When you hear the barking in the background, <laughs> but that's cool. beside the point. But I have a yeah. What's the point? What is the point? Well, there's Are some, you getting there's to something? Some, yeah, there's yeah. It has totally unrelated. Okay. Now you've heard of the Burke Museum, haven't you? I have indeed. And do you know what's happening at the Burke Museum right this very moment? Well, my show is continuing. That's there. right. Maybe today's the day. It's down i don't know there's a ray troll show there but the burke museum in seattle washington that's right that they have just completed a field season in montana hell creek and they found some awesome awesome specimens of do you know what an occipital condyle is i know the name no i guess the short answer oh it's that huge ball joint like on the back of a pickup truck on the which is on the back of the frill of a triceratops to hold hold that massive head and gives the massive head the ability to swing it's a ball joint yeah and these things are grapefruit sizes and cannonball size well they actually found a triceratops skull they found the hips and legs of a duck-billed dinosaur a hadrosaur, and they found the chicken from hell, which is, oh. uh, yeah, it's a species of Anzu Wiley. Right, 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 right. That's the chicken from hell. That's a, it's a type of really big theropod. Yeah, yeah, an ostrich-like theropod. Anyway, uh, so yeah. they're uh, jacketing all this stuff up, and they're going to be shipping it for the fossil preparatory viewing area in uh, right, the Burke. At the Burke Museum. That's yeah. cool. That's cool. So, yeah. having never been there or having never heard of the Burke Museum till I met you, um, <laughs> there you go. Well, There's some is, news. It is it is Seattle's premier if um, nat- natural history museum. Well, I, I got to go. I got to go museum. when I'm up there next. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great museum, and uh, it's really been fun. I've had three exhibits there. Awesome. Over the years. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you should. You are, you're a Pacific Northwesterner. Well, my career got a real start there. And you know, our buddy, our mutual pal, Kirk Johnson, now at the Smithsonian. No, I don't Kirk think Johnson. I, I've never heard you mention that guy. Yeah, boy, we shamelessly name drop no, him all the no, time. No, you name drop him on every episode, <laughs> Ray. 
Well, Kurt grew up at the at right. the Burke Museum. Right. Basically, his mom used to drop him off there. So, yeah, that's a good mom. Yeah, it's a good mom. So wait, we have an amazing, amazing guest today, and um, not only is is he just one of those people who totally love you could tell loves paleontology but he has a, a pretty amazing youtube presence many many interviews of his work and um we talked about his book locked in time by by well dean lomax doctor dr dean lomax that's right and uh many of our guests are phds but not all of them but uh dean got he went kind of an interesting route we'll ask him about that how he got his phd but yeah uh, he sold his star wars set to, to, yeah, to pay for a trip. Well, that led to, one thing led to another, but uh, he's got a really interesting background. What's cool is that uh, my geologic timescale is in the new book. He wrote me an email out of the blue saying, hey, can I use this in my new book and my upcoming book? And now the book is out. Yeah. And it is called Locked in Time. We'll ask about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's a great Really book. excited. The guy is a true, He, I think he's a, he's a bona fide paleo nerd. Oh, you can tell. Oh, you can tell. Yeah. And and we're going to uh, dive down into his first love, which is what? Ichthyosaurs? Yes, sir. Marine reptiles. Yeah, the marine. I want to I nerd out because yeah. I'm sort of an ichthyosaur Me too. geek as well. And I've personally helped find a few so I'll bet you uh, have. i'm excited to talk to him about that and in southeast uh, alaska by the way ray your so. your sclerotic ring is showing <laughs> <laughs> i had surgery on that yeah funny oh. there it's back oh yeah, mm, yeah. okay yeah. so let's I uh mine enlarged Dave. now he's he's <laughs> all the way across the pond and uh let's give him a ring shall we on and i'll use my english my english phone if you don't know. yeah let's call him up he's in jolly old england he is our first guest the uk Okay. Give him a dial, man. In the UK. I see what you did there. Hey, Dave, meet Dean Lomax, paleontologist, author, adventurer, and science communicator, and visiting scientist at the University of Manchester. Dean, it is great to finally meet you, man. Oh, it's a real pleasure to to finally meet you, Ray, and, and you too, David. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, b before this interview, you guys were part of the Mutual Admiration Society. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Dean, where did you first come across Ray's work or, or reaching out to Ray? Well, that would be in, in 2008. I saw his poster, which, funnily enough, I literally have on my wall right in front of me as we're speaking now, his, his poster from the... Cruising the Fossil Freeway oh, book. You were 18 then, right? In 2008. Yeah, 2008. Yep, yep, 18. So I was at the, the Wyoming Dinosaur Center, which is kind of part of my backstory of how oh, I we'll get into paleontology. That, yeah. We'll come to, yeah, yeah, I'll come to that in a moment. But yeah, I was walking through the through the gift shop there. And, <laughs> uh, and, and, and of course, I bought his book. Good man, good man. <laughs> but one of our mutual friends, Bill Wall, he had said, oh, you know, Dean, I'm in this book as well. And, he, and he's like, oh, there's this cool poster, which they have up in the gift shop. So I went and I was like, oh, I stood there for, for literally what seemed like hours and hours. And I'm sure it probably was hours. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and now I get to do it all the time. Literally, it's right in front of me. Uh, <laughs> I've got some artwork uh, of his behind me right now. There. Yeah, I'm all over the place. Oh, yeah. yeah I like the, you know, Banksy did the thing, uh, exit through the gift shop. And uh, so I've, I, I'm glad to be represented. <laughs> you met me in the gift shop. That is so cool. And But yeah, I think Dave has got a very important question for you. Yeah, real important. And I... Sure, I know the answer. Dean, are you a paleo nerd? 
Oh, well, I absolutely am a massive Kelly <laughs> nerd. In fact, I'm wearing a, a Hallucigenia, stylized Hallucigenia t-shirt right now just to prove how much of a Kelly nerd I am. You can even see its smiley little face. And, and we all know that uh, Hallucigenia is a Burgess Shale organism that literally looks like something out of an Owlsley acid trip. Yeah, man, it's hence the name. It's Cambrian Beast. And uh, what's so cool about it is for years they looked at it and they realized that they've been looking at it upside down. And then they turned yeah. looked at it the other way. But, but hey, Dean, how did you come to your paleo nerddom? You were one of those uh, kind of semi-annoying kids that knew every polysyllabic Latin name of everything and, and always recited them. And, and did that start with Jurassic Park in your generation or, or what? How did it start? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I would say one of those very annoying <laughs> kids. So I was that, that kid that kid in school who every opportunity would be taking in dinosaur toys, taking in fossils to talk about. And it was just kind of everything I could learn about. It had to be something related to prehistoric life. And so growing up, I, I'm originally from, from Doncaster, a town in, in Yorkshire, in South Yorkshire. And so kind of growing up, that was all I ever wanted to be was a paleontologist. And so I, had, I you know, collected fossils, read as many books as possible, and eventually kind of got to the point of looking at university. But in school, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't the best, best student in school. In fact, I, you know, you probably won't believe this, but I actually failed science what? in high school. <laughs> so I, yeah, yeah, I failed high school. Well, it's uh, not hard to do if you have a, a poor teacher that doesn't incite the interest. This is true. Yeah, this is true. There was one teacher who I do remember. I mean, some science teachers at the school, I do recall, were, you know, were good teachers. But one of them in particular, when I was like, oh, you know, I want to be a paleontologist. He literally said to me, ha, you'll never be a paleontologist. What? <laughs> and, oh, yeah, seriously. No. Seriously, at like the age of maybe 12 or 13. Oh. And you can imagine for a, <laughs> a kid that age, I was It's kind of kind of shocking. Dream and so destroyer. It, it always stuck oh, with man. me. It's crushing. Yeah, crushing. Right, right exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, for, for coming from a, a town in Doncaster, which at the time was not really well known for fossils, and um, I'd always visit sort of the, the the Yorkshire coast. I don't know if you're familiar with the sort of geography of the UK, but I'm from like a couple of hours away from the Yorkshire coast. So I actually grew up visiting the Yorkshire coast to collect fossils from places like Whitby. You, maybe you, you're not familiar with that. And in fact, actually, literally in my little cabinet of curiosities behind me, I have a cool fossil of... Now, what... What uh, sediment and age is the Yorkshire coast? Yeah, the Yorkshire coast material, David. So that's uh, Jurassic, early Jurassic material. But marine? Yeah, marine. So about 180 million years old. So I'm holding up a... Well, I'm holding up... So this is a really big nodule. It doesn't look like anything. But this is the sort of stuff that we'd collect. So we'd go out looking for these kind of circular nodules. And getting your eye in, having a bit of experience in the field, and you're kind of like, you know, I think there may be a fossil in there. Crack it open, and then you've got the oh, beautiful ammonite. Oh my goodness! Oh, beautiful ammonite. Look That's at what that. we're looking at there. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Hold on. I, yeah. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do a screenshot real quick here. So hold that up there. Okay. Yeah, done. That's awesome. <laughs> so you yeah. you you got to go fossil finding as a kid. So you really had the fever. And as I understand it, um, oh, yeah. so you had the bad grades. You were just you did not have the best teachers. People were telling you stop playing with the dinosaurs. Grow up. Get a Get a job, man. Yeah, so you got the job. Yeah. And at 18, you did something extraordinary. You sold a certain mm. collection and you went off <laughs> to the US of A. Yeah. And that took guts. Yeah. That took real guts to do so that. So tell us that story. What's, what's oh, big what, time. what happened there? 
Yeah, well, well, just to go back slightly from you, you asked your question, right, in answer about sort of yeah, Jurassic yeah. Park and getting into to Paleo. So, so Jurassic Park, funnily enough, it really wasn't one of the movies, at least from my early childhood memories, that, that kind of sparked my imagination. Because with Jurassic Park coming out in 1993, yeah. I was, what, four years old when that came out, and so I don't think my parents would let me yeah. see it. So I was more like kind of Land Before Time, right? So Land Before Time, which is an excellent movie, but that eventually... As I got a little bit older, Jurassic Park, of course, was such a cool film, cool movie. And so watching lots of documentaries, Attenborough documentaries on fossils and things like that, you know, that kind of really just sparked my imagination as well of getting out in the field and visiting museums and reading books. But then when I got to my kind of teen years and touching upon what you just said there, when I got to kind of the age of, I guess, here in the UK, probably 15, 16, it was still very apparent that I wanted to be a paleontologist Mm -hmm. no matter what. And... (laughs) And so I looked at all the possibilities here in the UK, but because I didn't, I didn't have the grades, you know, I, I'd failed science in, in high school, kind of my, my top grades, I think, I guess it's, I've been reading it up a little, reading up a little bit. I think it's what you call the, is it AP examinations in the US? Yeah. For, to go in and, to, yeah. AP to, to for college, yeah, for college yeah, entrance. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But my grades for that were ridiculously poor, like so bad. Yeah, there was no way I could get into, into college, into university here. And so... The other option I had was to go and look at the prospects of gaining some sort of proper first-hand experience. And so I looked at literally <laughs> going to the, it takes a bit for me to say this, going to the USA. So this was, I'm 18 in 2008, and I had to continue working a whole bunch of jobs that I really, really didn't like. So it's in bartending, in delivery, and also, you know, I come from quite a poor sort of family background. So I had to raise as much money as I could to to go on this trip to to Wyoming. And I landed on this museum called the Wyoming Dinosaur Center, but I needed the money to get there. And I didn't have enough. And so it <laughs> kind of still kills me to say it. I see you both laughing here, but Not me. Uh, I sold I you, my, <laughs> yeah, I sold my childhood Star Wars no. collection of action figures. Oh, man. And that yeah. so that what, did the deal, so yeah. And then you off you went. Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much. I ended up selling for for Transformers fans as well. <laughs> I ended up buying kind of Transformers toys from like the nineteen eighties. I was a big Transformers fan. I used to buy them from like uh, car boots, which are like flea markets, and uh, I used to buy them from there too. So I sold them as well. So yeah, primarily the Star Wars, but Transformers. But hey, it, it funded that trip to Wyoming, and uh, and that is really where my career began it set me down the the path that i i went into paleontology but that took guts and it took passion and it took dedication so yeah i laughed about it because it's sad in a way but <laughs> oh, uh, it is. <laughs> but it is absolutely brilliant that you took those steps for a life-changing yeah. opportunity Th- thank you and what blows my mind is you wrote to these fellows the folks at the wyoming dinosaur center right and and you said i'm coming over can i go on a dig will you what about housing? What about, how'd you arrange all that? They just showed up? Yeah, so, so with that, so I was coming right to the end of my final school year, which over here we call A-level. So it was like the final year, year 13. So I'm 17, 18 years old. And there was, by chance, there was actually a substitute teacher who, he was a really good teacher. And, and we got chatting about, he was like, Dean, what are you going to do when you leave school? And, and I said, look, I, I want to be a paleontologist. I've been d- getting as much experience as I could here in the UK by volunteering here and there, collecting fossils. And he said, "Well, where in the where you know where in the world would you like to go?" And I was like, "Oh, you know, this Wyoming would be amazing, Montana, somewhere like that. You know, you'd go on an actual proper dinosaur dig, a full full scale excavation." And so he he wrote to a couple of these places as well for me. He was really nice, a really great guy. Wow. And I've kept in touch with him over the years. 
And so he, I basically wrote out kind of a CV of myself, what I've got, what I've got here, and a kind of introduction to my background and what I'd like to achieve. And we had a few places come back, but the Wyoming Dinosaur Center, it stuck out like immediately. They basically said they were fantastic, and I've kept in touch with them over the years. Brilliant institution. And they said to me, no, Dean, we'd like to give you an opportunity to come and volunteer here for which was in total for almost four months. And um, as long as you can pay for your airfare and pay for your time over here, we'd be willing to put you up free of accommodation wow. as part of, wow. yeah, as part of their, um, they had interns there for the summer. And so they said that you can go and, you know, share with the intern house. And, and I was like, what an opportunity, of course. So it was my first time being around professional paleontologists and also students. So there was so many questions that you imagine, right, in high school, me being that kind of, well, being that paleo nerd, right? Being that, that dinosaur fanatic, chatting about these things. And most of my friends who, they were very kind to me, expressed an interest, but it, it was kind of next level being at the, <laughs> in Wyoming at the Dinosaur Center. So I could actually talk about hallucinogenia or anything else. And people got what I was <laughs> got what I was saying. I kind of found a place, if you like. And, and by going out there, it just opened my eyes to the world of paleontology and how, how the, the field itself how it works in the field so how you can be become a sort of field scientist become an academic go into public engagement work in museums as a curator and it kind of gave me a real taste of a real flavor of how to how to approach it as a science and so spending that four months there just really gave me so much experience it really became the the backbone of my career wow you are a shining example of how you put your nose to the grindstone. You can achieve anything you want. Well, it's having that dedication to that, to that vision. You wanted to be a paleontologist. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So after all of the, the four months spent in Wyoming, I came back to, to my hometown, to Doncaster. And I'd always visited my local museum, which is Doncaster Museum and Art Gallery, as a, as a child. But they never had any fossils on display. So I'd always been under the assumption that they didn't have a fossil collection. As it turns out... When I'd, I'd approached them and said, look, uh, I've just come back from this, this dig in Wyoming. And I met with one of the head, head archaeologists there, Peter Robinson. And Peter said, oh, you know, Dean, we, we actually do have a few fossils here in the collection. But we, uh, we haven't had a paleontologist since, I think it was 1912. <laughs> so it was quite some time ago. Yeah, quite some time ago. And the last geologist, she'd retired in, nine, in the 1980s. So I just said, well, look, you know, maybe... I could volunteer here and I with the money that I was earning from like the jobs bartending and stuff I, I could just continue to to pay like bus fare and stuff to get into the museum just to gain that experience to see the bigger picture of, of gaining as much experience as possible because that could help in the future and so anyway between the two of us we said yeah you know Dean come in to to volunteer at the museum as, as and when you can and as part of that you know looking at the museum collections we can create a mini ex exhibition mini display on the fossils that you kind of rediscover well, going through the collection, it became very, very apparent that they had no idea of what they had. Wow. And so wow. I'm going through like, yeah, so you imagine, right, oh, as a paleontologist, man, can... up and coming paleontologist, going through like drawer after drawer and thinking like, oh, what? I have no idea what that is. And then like pulling out like Eurypterids, like literally over a meter and a half no long. Way. Yeah. And, and, and they have no clue what they had. And so looking at this stuff, it turns out altogether, we managed to find about well, over 10,000 fossils. And they... they what? Yeah, yeah, and they... Yeah, over 10,000. And they and thought would they, these have all been collected in the uh, uh, last century or the 1800s? Yeah, so they, they were all collected, yeah, over, over the course of the museum sort of being built, which was 18... I forget the date when it was opened. But yeah, over the last 100 plus years that they were wow. collected and some of them purchased. And so it was kind of just like me going through this this kind of, well, hidden collection. And... and as an 18-year-old, and obviously then I spent several years going through the collections, 
earning you know earning so much um, of my time obviously learning so much of my time over in the in Wyoming and, and putting those kind of um, that experience to the task at the museum going through the drawers identifying so much material being able to handle all this stuff because obviously I've been handling fossils since I was a little boy you know I'd, I'd been collecting them and so I had a, a like a basic understanding of identification so I could say you know oh, this is an ammonite from the Yorkshire coast this is a, a fossil plant from from the Yorkshire coal measures from deep underground in, in the coal seams but then one cool thing happened is, I mean, I have many cool things at the museum, <laughs> but I, but I, one of the education managers at the time said to me, Dean, you know, you and Peter are putting together this uh, this exhibition on fossils, and, and we actually have a very cool plastic copy of an ichthyosaur. Ah. And so I was like, oh, you know, neat. Let me go and, go and take a look. And so he and I, we walked to the back of the museum, went into the little education department, and he whips off this sheet. And underneath the sheet, is this ichthyosaur staring at me? And my immediate thought is, well, that's not a cast, that's not a replica, that's a real, that's a real specimen. <laughs> yeah, it was not a yeah, cast. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and and I say this to him, I was like, oh, um, you know, this is real, right? And he he's like, yeah. uh, oh, it can't it can't be. We uh, we use we use this in education sessions with children. <laughs> rolling around in so, the schools all the time and the kids are pounding on I mean, it. Yeah. yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So, so uh, we immediately stopped, stopped that from Have happening. It. Had it cleaned up a little bit. And literally from that day, right between the ribs of this uh, this ichthyosaur, and I should say this ichthyosaur is about 1.5 metres uh, in length, maybe a little That's bit a longer. Big, it's a really beautiful, yeah, it's a, it is. And it's a be- beautifully preserved. You've got the, the skull was preserved, com- well, almost complete skull to almost to the tip of the snout. And you've got parts of ribs, Parts of uh, one of the forefins and um, some of the vertebral column, and then right between the ribs is this dark mass, which I remember thinking right at the time when I saw it, I thought, well, that's really weird. I wonder, could it be stomach contents or something like that? And then, as it turns out, because this is how serendipitous paleontology is and how things kind of fall into place, that summer that I'd just gone to been been in Wyoming, I happened to meet Professor Judy Massere, who is a, a renowned marine reptiles expert, primarily working on ichthyosaurs. And so I had that contact. So I sent her some pictures, sent Bill Wall some pictures. And the two of them said, you know, this looks like stomach contents. A few other people had also said the same thing. And so um, Judy actually encouraged me to write that up as a scientific paper. And of course, you know, I, I thought, wow, you know, I can't do that. I'm 18. And <laughs> like, there's, no, there's no way I could do that. I, I have, you know, I have no clue what even a paper was because in funny enough, it's it probably make you both laugh. But in Wyoming... Because I'd never been brought up with that academic kind of background, when I heard the students or the paleontologists say, hey, have you read that latest paper on T-Rex or this? I genuinely thought they meant newspapers. I, I got to <laughs> confess, Dean, yeah. I, being an artist, I didn't know about papers, you know, really, until I started right? hanging okay. out like yeah. you know, with scientists, like, oh, that's what they do. They write a paper. Yeah. But, you know, actually, yeah. for our listening audience, just uh, I'm thinking about those who are tuning in or maybe hearing this out of the blue, can you tell us, can you describe what an ichthyosaur is? Because, you know, we're, we're nerds. We know what they are. But what's an ichthyosaur? It's not a dinosaur. Well, that's going to be my starting point. For every time you said it's not a dinosaur, I'd be... Uh, a You'd be very weird. rich. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so first of all, definitely, David, it's the, they're not dinosaurs. So ichthyosaurs are these in, incredible, an incredible group of extinct marine reptiles. So they superficially look a little bit like yeah. dolphins or sharks, and they, they lived exclusively in the water as well. And they evolved roughly, well, around about 250 million years ago. 
and they evolved this kind of this dolphin-shaped body, although some of them actually look quite a bit more like, like whales, and in fact, they grew right, to right. the size, some of them grew to the size of whales. Shonosaurus, what is and it? Sh- that's Sh- it, Shonosaurus. Yeah. Well, is the largest but, one. Yeah, one of the largest. There's a research paper I brought out a couple of years ago, which indicates some of them may have even got bigger than that, so possibly up to the maximum size of blue whales of kind of 30-plus metres. What? In that length. big? So, yeah, like massive. So they were kind of doing what... What uh, ichthyosaurs were doing, what kind of, um, yeah, what whales, dolphins, and that have been, you know, doing now. Ichthyosaurs did it all long They did before. it all so long they before, yeah. And... So when we say, you say 30 meters, that's approaching 100 feet in... 90 feet. 90 feet-ish, yeah. thereabouts. Okay, back to the ichthyosaur. So they started in the early or mid-Triassic, 242 yeah. million years ago, but they died out 10 million before... The KPG Cretaceous extinction. They made event. it toward the end of the Cretaceous, yeah. But yeah, to, yeah to, but why did they not? What happened ten million years before the KPG boundary? Why? Why then? Many theories. Yeah, it's weird, right? Yeah, there's many theories, and 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 it was a little bit before then, so it's roughly about ninety million years, so a little bit earlier than, than oh, okay. ten million. But they, oh, oh, but 39 it's thirty million years before. Yeah, yeah but about about thirty million years. But it's it seems it's such a mystery because if you look at marine reptiles, if you look at extinct marine reptiles, and you think of you know plesiosaurs, pliosaurs, you think of mosasaurs, some of the ancient crocodile relatives as well, you know the marine crocs, of them all, and even today with even marine iguanas, uh, sea snakes, or, or even sea turtles, ichthyosaurs are the best adapted reptiles for the ocean. So you'd imagine, like, why would they, why, why would they go extinct? They evolved this fish-shaped body. They're, they're so, you know, amazing predators. They're, some of them are super quick. And, and it seems so odd. But the, the kind of two main theories are that, one, for, for a long time, there was the fact that ichthyosaurs may have been sort of out-competed into extinction by sort of more modern like modern type sharks or things like like mosasaurs but then that although it's probable that it also doesn't didn't kind of it doesn't kind of add up in the whole grand scheme of things and one of the big research pushes of late over the last 10 years looking at ichthyosaurs and the extinction one of the key things is that potentially it was it was even due to to climate change so differences in in climate change ultimately drove ichthyosaurs if not if not ichthyosaurs themselves there was a certain prey that they were feeding on couldn't adapt quick enough to that environment so therefore they died and then the food chain died so the ichthyosaurs died too and then other animals like the sharks and the mosasaurs clearly must have been doing something better than the ichthyosaurs and so very sadly uh went, went extinct yeah it's it's kind of an interesting concept and that's you know, the mosasaurs and other marine reptiles out competing them you know is is pretty much the standard story you hear but kind of an idea that like the the pool was getting overcrowded in a way but but yeah, but just but I wait. I have a habit of of steering our guests Ray toward uh, <laughs> not completing a thought, and we, we got to go back to that fossil you found. Let's go in, back in to that. Yeah. And I have a habit too. Yeah. So what's, <laughs> I have what's a habit that? Too, Ray? And I want to follow up on this question, but let's go back to finishing okay. up that story. <laughs> This, this, this is not ideal because I do this too. Once you get me talking yeah, about know, fossils, I know. We I'll just for hours. It's, it's our downfall. We veer here and veer. Left and right, Dean, but it's the nature. So so the black mass you saw in the rib cage of your 1.5 meter ichthyosaur. Ichthyosaur, yep. So so this turns out to be its last meal before it died. And so literally preserved between this this dense uh, black mass are hundreds of microscopic hook-shaped objects that are from the arms of, of squid. And then on top of that, we found at least just one isolated, sort of like a centimetre-sized um, um, fish scale in there as well. So we know that roughly 
187 million years ago when this ichthyosaur was swimming around the Jurassic Seas, it was feeding on squid and fish before it died, which may well have been sort of a lazy Sunday afternoon. Right. <laughs> it was full, you know, it was full of its last meal and it died. And so for me, that kind of blew my mind a bit. I was like, oh, how cool is this? And so speaking to, to Judy Misere about it, Judy had said, you know, Dean, nobody had, had written up a, a study of an ichthyosaur from the early Jurassic with stomach contents in the UK for a number of years. And so she'd encouraged me to get into to writing the paper, which I began writing when I was 18, almost immediately following the trip to Wyoming and my first couple of weeks volunteering at Doncaster Museum. And so that led me into ichthyosaurs and ultimately staying on that theme. I know we can get into more about ichthyosaurs in a little while as well, but staying on that theme. So I, I actually teamed up with Judy Massere in 2010 and our plan was to go through and look at the historic ichthyosaur genus, which is ichthyosaurus, which gives its yes. name to the, to the group. Yeah, and that's what it, as it turns out, the ichthyosaur at Doncaster was an ichthyosaurus, but I couldn't quite work out what species it was. And, and as a result, the species, it's, well, the genus itself wasn't that well defined. So you couldn't say, you know, look at the skeleton and say, oh, it's, you know, X species or it's Y species. And so for doing that, me and Judy said, let's, let's team up. And using Judy's experience and kind of my passion and drive and, and excitement to get into the field we teamed up and became you know we've become great friends over the years and we spent for years and years and years literally traveling across the uk across the us and in in europe examining thousands and thousands of ichthyosaurs primarily ichthyosaurus when in doing so the specimen at doncaster we determined that it was a new species to science and wow. which we we got to name and this is one of five ichthyosaurs that i've named as new species but this one still Still gives me goosebumps talking about it, actually, because it meant so much to me for multiple reasons, because it was my hometown, because the way in which it was initially thought to be a plaster copy. Yeah. But we decided to name it after name it after Mary Anning. She sells seashells, doesn't she? Apparently so. <laughs> and ichthyosaurus skulls, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's ichthyosaurus anning a anning a? Yeah, correct. Yeah, ichthyosaurus anning a. And and amazingly, you know, despite Mary being the first person to bring ichthyosaurs, her discoveries were, were the first ichthyosaurs brought to the attention of science. Nobody named an ichthyosaur after her. Really? So, really, yeah, yeah. So, so it was the first time that anybody named an ichthyosaur after her, formally as, a, as an academic, you know, peer-reviewed. Dean, have you seen my book, Planet Ocean? Have you ever seen that one? I can't say I have, unfortunately. Sorry, Ray. <laughs> In that one, I, I did a drawing, and we'll put this on the website. This, this is great because I get to go back through my vaults. I did a drawing of uh, Mary and the ichthyosaurs, and she's laying on the cliffs of Dover, and there are ichthyosaurs above her. So this is this is like perfect, and it's giving me goosebumps just thinking about it right now, man. Wow! <laughs> but uh, so, Dean, tell me, after you published the paper on the ichthyosaur, you went back into academia somehow, or you earned a PhD? Yeah, so after the time in Wyoming and after doing the research on the Ichthyosaurus anie, at that time, so this is 2014, 2014, 2015, I'd written quite a few papers at this point. And so I became affiliated in January 2013 with the University of Manchester here as a visiting scientist, mm. where I had sort of my own students to work with as, a, as an expert on ichthyosaurs. And at that time, because I never did an undergrad degree, we looked at the prospects of doing a, a PhD kind of right off the bat based on my experience. Oh. And yeah, so I decided in, at first, first of all, I decided actually let me do a, you know, I'll do it. I'll do a master's, what we call over here an MPhil. I think you may have an equivalent in the, in the US, but effectively an MPhil is a, is kind of like a higher master's. So it's, it's kind of, a, it's, 
it's between a master's and a PhD. And often it's your first year of a PhD. So I did the MPhil. And then I, again, based on the research that I had published here and other works as well, other books and things, I'd kind of worked my way up and worked so hard to get to a point to be able to to actually study for the for the PhD. So despite never having an undergrad degree, I managed to do my PhD, which I, I completed in three years. And wow. I was it, it was funded as well, incredibly so. It was funded to do that work. And as part of the PhD, I did it by, by publication. So this traditional route is where you do one single thesis, or there's another route where you can do it by publication. And so as I continue to do my research, I had to have like a running theme, which inevitably was ichthyosaurs and specifically a revision of ichthyosaurus. And as I published, they became chapters in my PhD. So every chapter in my PhD, I published. And so by the end of the PhD, I think it was seven chapters was published wow. and that became my, my thesis. And became, You leapfrogged uh, into a doctorate. Yeah, yeah, leap, leapfrogged into doctor and then became, yeah, doc, doctor, elevated to Dr. Lomax. <laughs> well, doctor, that is a <laughs> cool is, story. Uh, it's a very inspiring story, man. Very cool. This is a, a perfect opportunity to turn the conversation toward your amazing book, Locked in Time, yeah. because you have taken this idea of these frozen moments, these literally fossilized time, the little episodes, and expanded it into an extraordinary book. Can I say that of all the things in paleontology, this is the thing that makes my hair stand on what little hair I have left stand on the back of my neck because it's the moments in time that make it real for me you know as you said a, a dusty old bone in situ is, is boring but when you find a, an organism locked in a Tuesday at 3 p.m and you see that that was a living breathing organism it is mind-blowing and that is what your book locked in time encapsulates so do, do, do explain to our listeners how you got the idea and, and what it is. And then we have, we're going to talk about so many think, of these we have uh, long, chapters. We have a long list of all the stuff, so we'll see how we go. So, <laughs> so Dean, what's it all about, man? Yeah, lo locked in time, I have to, again, first of all, my the, the trip I had to Wyoming in 2008 really did define me very much so as the kind of the backbone of my career for multiple reasons. But it's also where the idea behind locked in time came from. So the very first day I visited the museum, there was another volunteer called Jordi, who was from Spain. And Jordi gave me a, a tour of the museum. He'd been there for about a month or so before me, before I, I arrived. He gave me a tour of the museum and he stopped me at one, one spot and he showed me this big, big chunk of, of limestone. And I, I, I looked at it and he said, what do you think is unusual about this limestone block? And there was some the only way I could describe it is that they're in the middle of this massive limestone block, which is, it was probably about two meters tall. There's this like this area which looked like trampling or some sort of footprints. And he said to me, Dean, follow that. And, and it gets bigger. This, this limestone block gets bigger and bigger. And, and, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of puzzled by this. So I start to follow these this sort of trampling. And then immediately you can see that they're footprints. And there's footprints leading away from this kind of trampled surface and this limestone block continues to grow and grow and grow. And right at the end of this trackway is the animal literally dead in its oh, tracks. Thanks. You've got this little horseshoe crab, oh. which is... <laughs> That's yeah, my favorite yeah. one. That's my favorite one in the whole book. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's, you can see why. It, this literally is my favorite for multiple reasons. But I, I, I remember seeing it and it, it blew my mind. How, how could this fossil... How could that happen? 
How could you have this little horseshoe crab from 150 million years ago? This is from the Solnhofen limestones in Germany, which is famous for, for fossils like Archaeopteryx. This little horseshoe crab's fallen into what was a, a hypersaline lagoon environment. So this is where there's no, it was, there's no oxygen there at the bottom of this lagoon. And literally you have preserved where it's landed on its back on the prosoma. It's wriggled around, it's righted itself, and then it's left its little foot, footprints, its little tracks in time. But then it's, I mean, it's very sad story. It's sad. But it's, it's suffocated. So sad, <laughs> it's, it, it's but he's disoriented, isn't he? He's a yeah, bit disoriented. Yeah, yeah, right. right, yeah, exactly. So it's disoriented and it's, it's kind of rocking, you know, it's walking up and down, up and down, and then it's changing direction. Oh. And then right towards the end of the track, you can see where its legs are getting sort of deeper in the sediment where it's trying to <laughs> I'm push sorry, off. I'm laughing. Oh, this is, it's terrible, terrible, isn't it? Ray, uh, stop it. it. <laughs> It's trying to push off of the, the sediment and then, you know, eventually it succumbs and, and it suffocates oh. to death, which is, you know, it's dreadful. Uh. It's a dreadful story. But then for the paleontologists coming along <laughs> 150 million years later, that encapsulates such an, an epic fossil to have that preserved. You, you've got the entire thing. You've got, it's very rare, as you, as you I'm sure you both well know, to have a trace fossil preserved with a body fossil. But to have that entire moment in time preserved and also, I, I think it's very cool. These types of fossils are called Morticnians, which is effectively oh. death, death traces. It's an ichno-fossil with death in the end. Yeah, exactly that. And that was uh, was coined by a famous uh, German paleontologist, geologist called Adolf Seilacher, who sadly is no longer with us. He was a fantastic scientist. And he, what, he that described these again? types what of fossils. What is that word again? You. I'm sorry. The... It, it's it's Mort Morticnian. Morticnian. So it sounds yeah. like death and ichno? Yeah, like death trace. Death the trace. Death oh. trace. Oh my goodness. Now, how do you know? How do you know? I, you're assuming the the ocean was anoxic without oxygen, and that's why it died. But couldn't have couldn't it have suffered some something at the surface, and then you know a, a bird pecked its inner uh, <laughs> uh, carapace or something, and, and then it died. But I mean, is the the assumption that it's anoxic, or is there a chemical analysis that shows that? Yes, so the area of Solnhofen is, they're effectively a, a bunch of lagoons, what Solnhofen was. So you've got the, the oh. what's called like the Tethys Sea, which is where all the animals were living. And then during storms or potentially like tsunamis, or potentially, like you say, it could be a bird or, or a pterosaur or something has predated on an animal and it's dropped it in the lagoon. So practically all the fossils that you see from Solnhofen are these ancient lagoons, which are anoxic at the bottom, very bottom. So no oxygen at all, and there's nothing effectively living in the bottom, at least in most of the lagoons. So when, so let's say, for example, our, our understanding of this specimen, this horseshoe crab, is that almost certainly there was some sort of storm event that happened. And there's evidence of storms, at, uh, if you study the Solnhofen limestones, that some sort of storm event had happened, flung this little juvenile oh. into the into the <laughs> lagoon. And, and in fact, if you look at modern-day uh, horseshoe crabs, in fact, as part of the study, because I went on to describe that, that horseshoe crab in 2012... So not only did it give me the idea to um, for this book, but I actually I was so fascinated by it. I ended up describing it with a fellow paleontologist who was at the Wyoming Dinosaur Center at the time, Chris Racy. And he and I looked at the literature, looked at modern horseshoe crabs, and based on inexperience with their behaviors of, of, of modern horseshoe crabs, as juveniles, if they're ever spooked in the water column, they tend to, to swim up. So there's more chance if there's a storm, they're going to get caught and flung out of the 
out of the sea, so, and, and hence happened. So it did not die of old age or boredom or anything. It was a juvenile, right? So, Sadly not. This, yeah. So this is a little one. So it was a dark and stormy night, and the baby gets cast. It gets uh, even sadder. Oh my goodness! You know, it 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 does. It get it is quite sad. Uh, you know, you're dealing with death constantly as a paleontologist. Uh, <laughs> you know, I actually found myself telling this story recently as part of a talk, and um, it was a general audience, and I'm talking about this little horseshoe crab sort of suffocating to death. And you've got at the end of this, there's a little kid <laughs> raised his hands. He's about five, and he said. Oh, what happened to the horseshoe crab then? And, and his dad was like, well, he suffocated to death, son. <laughs> oh. I was like, yeah, I was like, well, you know, from the perspective of, of science and communicating that, it makes for a great fossil, a great story. And, and it, it was one of those kind of funny, amusing moments where everybody in the audience <gasps> was kind of like, this is hilarious, but also at the same time, tragically sad for the horseshoe crab. We have to give a shout out to Bob Nichols. Bob did an incredible job. Bob is the artist that you work with. How was that? What was the relationship like there? How how did you guys go back and forth oh, yeah. there? Well, he's yeah. a funny guy. I watched that video where you guys were interviewed by the uh, the Natural History Museum, <laughs> and uh, he, he his his responses were very funny. He's he's a <laughs> unique guy. Bob Nichols. Bob, he does impressive. incredible illustrations for Locked in Time and. My only lament, though, is that it's not in full glorious color, man. I'm sure. What is yeah. your Ray? What is your favorite illustration uh, in the book? Because I have mine, and I'll tell you what mine is. Oh, there's so many. There's just so many great, uh, great right. images. But you know, um... mine is the windswept colony of pterosaurs, and there's some of them are fly many of them are flying, but some of them are sitting on the beach in a in a driving rain. That's pretty, yeah, he's, and, and he's good with that. It looks like they're almost sitting out, looking out over, pondering the storm. And I like the Tsitakosaurus uh, mama with yeah. uh, all the little babies. But but hey, yeah. Dean, what was it like? How did you guys, um, what was it like working with Bob? Yeah, so as I said, I had this idea for such a long time. I, I wanted to bring together a book about amazing fossils that tell actual stories of behavior. So D Dave touched upon the the fact that the, these are the fossils that really grip you right you you kind of feel some some connection to them they're not just kind of inanimate objects you know a, as cool as a as a dinosaur bone is if you have some sort of real story to tell you can you can actually take that story and and kind of relay that on to sort of modern day in the modern day world so you can see you know obviously as humans we we have similar behaviors we have our, our pets you can see wildlife today you can watch a, a documentary you can see animals today behaving in certain ways and so to be able to translate that back to fossils is quite remarkable and so i wanted to find somebody who who i know who is a not only a very talented artist but bob nichols is a, is a great scientist as well in his own right and so i approached bob probably must be about maybe four or five years ago and i'd known bob for a couple of years prior to that he and i had met, met at a conference here in the uk and so we were good friends. And when I approached Bob with the idea, he was like, like, dude, what a what an awesome concept for a book. And he couldn't think of any other book that had this approach before where you're literally looking at the direct evidence. And that's one of the things if I, you know, if I say so myself, hopefully I don't sound arrogant saying it. But, you know, that's one of the things I've always loved about this idea is that when I when I came up with this concept, I, I really did look far and wide to see if there's anything quite like this, which is based on the direct evidence. So we couldn't find anything. And Bob was so, so captivated by this idea that he was like, yeah, let's, you know, let's bring this to life. And he was keen to bring the 
not only bring the fossil itself, but to then bring my text to life. So I was kind of writing the 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 text for for say say the horseshoe crab. It's then sending photos of the fossil and the text to Bob and saying like Bob, this is kind of what I have in mind for the reconstruction. And so for every single image in there that he he created, every single um, piece of, of of illustration that he created, including the the front cover. So fifty one new artworks wow, for the book. Lot. Yeah. He is a lot of work, and and, and every single one is. But this is why I find it so unique. Every single piece of artwork in there is based on evidence that we have contained in the fossils. And it's it, some of the stuff when he sent to me, one of my personal favorites, funnily enough, is the Cetacosaurus, this famous babysitter specimen. It's just, it captures so much. And and it, later in the book, there is a, this is one of those cool like, Easter egg type, type things where in the book, if you skip to um, the fighting, biting, and feeding chapter, right. there's one where we talk about one of the mammals that fed on dinosaurs. In the background there, you've got that Cetacosaurus babysitter. Oh. So I don't know if you caught on oh. that. Yeah, so, you, <laughs> so, he, so yeah, he was keen to do things like that. But working with, with Bob, he's such a talented artist and scientist. And so, so having his background and input, because I'd also ask him to, when he's kind of reading my text, I'd say, Bob, could, you know, let me know if you think we could tweak this or if I could say something better here. And, and sometimes he'd come back and be like, you know what, Dean, maybe we could slightly change this so that we can reflect the image slightly better, you know, so his reconstruction. And so everything that I was sending to him, he was obviously then kind of translating in his own mind, turning it around and thinking, yeah, what's the best story we could tell given the exact evidence that we have contained in the fossil as, as well as Dean's text. And I think, you know, it's been a pleasure working with him and, and seeing it, Literally, the the idea and these fossils brought to life from from Bob has been yeah, it's been it's been fantastic. Well, they really bring a, a sense of a moment in time. Ray, what is your favorite locked in time moment? Oh, Dave, there are so many locked in time moments here. I've got a whole list of them. I went through them this this morning, but I'm sitting here in Kansas and I'm realizing that I am within striking distance of many of these uh, many of these uh, fossil finds and. See, there's Ashfall, which I could drive to tomorrow and be there. And Ashfall is so cool. But then there's also the dueling mammoths. There is snow. Oh, yeah. oh my God, the dueling mammoths. But actually, oh. let's, tell the, let's tell the dueling mammoths story because there's a kind of a little punchline at the end of that that I love. What happened there, man? Yeah, that is actually, funnily enough, I, I, I can thank you for that kind of, Ray, because the first time I, yeah, the first time I came across the reference to that was on your poster, literally on the poster staring at me right it, now. Right there, so yeah. the, you've got the Clash of the Titans in there. I'd never heard of that fossil before. And so that was the first time having some, some idea of that. So 2008. And then always having that in the back of my mind, I was like, what a cool fossil. So you have here two big bull Colombian mammoths that were literally found fighting to the death. And these are about 12,000 years old. They were found in, uh, in Nebraska. And when, when they were discovered, the team that were working together, they were, they were literally uh, excavating the skeleton. And they found, when they got to the, to the tusk, they found that the tusks were, were tangled. And they didn't understand what was happening. They thought, oh, was maybe is one of the tusks broken? And is it kind of like clipped around? One, you know, kind of caught on the other tusk? And then they continued to excavate. And they found that these two mammoths were actually stuck together by their tusks. And the reason why is because one mammoth had a broken left tusk and the other mammoth has a broken right tusk. And so what had happened is they'd managed to get in so close. Have you ever seen African elephants kind of butting heads and you know they, they clash their tusks? 
in this instance, these, these massive mammoths with obviously long curved tusks, the one that was broken either side, it meant that they could literally connect together and then they didn't, when they're trying to pull away, they just couldn't do that. And so they, they got stuck. And so potentially what had happened is then one of them, it may well be that one of the mammoths perhaps died first. So then the other one is literally stuck to it. It, it couldn't it couldn't get free. Wow, wow. And, 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 and one of the tusks poked when it was in the oh, yeah. orbital <laughs> the eye socket, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, so one of the complete yeah. tusks, oh. Oh, one of the mammoths. Is Do you know how painful that it. must be to have a mammoth tusk in your eye? Extremely, extremely painful. Don't they find some uh, deer with these, their their horns are connected? Yes, and stuck and they, find... yeah. they do. Yeah, 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 they do. And, and in some cases with uh, with deer and, and, and elk, <laughs> once the, the fight is over, it may well be that the loser loses their head as well. I've seen images of where, where you've had elk try and escape. Yeah, rip them off. So for, for a mammoth, that you've, and you've got two mammoths, you imagine these animals are probably, what, 10 tons. There's no way really it's going to be able to do that after such a, a big fight. Plus they, they were in, they were, the environment they were in, looking at the geology, it was quite, quite a slippery sediment. And so it, you can imagine this mammoth trying to get up and keep falling down. Oh, man. And so to have that, yeah, have this incredible fossil preserved together... Which, as I should say, it should say as well, it was 1962 when they were found, and it's one of these specimens that not so many people have heard about, right, right? right? And 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 so reading about this, you'd probably be surprised to learn as well. It's it's still not formally been described. Really, there was a really yeah. I, I was kind of I'm kind of keen to do that, <laughs> but I, I need to get out and physically get there and see it and, and work with some mammoth experts. But it's, a couple of things about it, it was Kirk Johnson. I've mentioned his name before in this show. <laughs> mm. I met Kirk. <laughs> it was Kirk Johnson who mentioned it, who who told me about it, and uh, I've I've yet to see the fossils themselves. But I wanted to say that this is basically a case of fossilized toxic masculinity. In where is this fossil? Uh, it's in Nebraska. Which collection is it in, Dean? It's at the tra- Trailside Museum. All right, but I think the 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 kicker to the whole thing is that when the mammoths died. They apparently fell over and they squished a coyote. A coyote. The coyote yeah. that was yeah. sitting there. Yeah. They oh. found the coyote underneath it. I mean, it literally it's like yep. fossilized, you know, uh, wily coyote right there. That's even that's even yep. more tragic. I know, and it fell on the poor, the little, poor coyote. little doggy. I know. And that's such a spectacular fossil. But hey, really is. Dave, how about you? What what's one of your favorite stories in this besides the the sad little horseshoe crab? Well, the horseshoe crab really made me feel sad. I mean, uh, that kind of took the cake. Um, I would have to say the megatherium burrows were pretty astounding. Uh, the South oh, yeah. South American burrows that are uh, massive tunnels th- with the scrape marks from the megatherium claws. And did you say that there was, what's that word? Mortichnian. Morticnian was a megatherium found in one of the burrows, or no? It was actually, yeah, it was. So that wouldn't be defined as a Morticnian. So the Morticnian has to be kind of a direct trace, sort of left oh, behind, and then it's it. kind of dead in its tracks. With the with the ground slopes, so yeah, I mean these are giant sort of elephant-sized ground slopes. These are these are massive animals, and they're creating these enormous burrows. They literally burrowed underground. Some of them were, I think, the largest on record, extended over one hundred meters long. So they were boring way into these tunnels and living underground. You could drive a car in, into these. Yeah, you, you can. Yeah, you, they're, they're that big. You know, you could easily drive a car. You could walk in 
uh, walk into these no no problem and you've got inside some of them not only do you have the bones of, of some of these ground sloth preserved inside them but as you just mentioned you have the claw marks on the on the sides as well so you can match up the claw marks with the claws of the of the ground slopes to to show without a doubt that they were made by by ground slopes whose fossils are found in exactly the same area yeah that is so cool speaking of speaking of matching i saw a youtube video of you walking through steve etch's museum oh yeah, yeah. and you you both talked about ichthyosaur bones that were crunched by pliosaur mouths is that correct yeah so the triangular-shaped teeth literally fit the smashed-up, crunched bones of ichthyosaur pelvic girdles and, and, and rib bones. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. So that's yeah, Steve Etches the, the Kimmer, in, in Kimmeridge in Dorset here, so the Etches Museum. So Steve and I have known, for, I've known him for now probably about 10 years, and he's a fantastic, talented paleontologist. He was originally a plumber, hmm. and he, he, collected, <laughs> he collected an incredible amount of fossils from this one area called Kimmeridge Bay. In, in Dorset on the Jurassic Coast, and, and that's on the south coast here in the UK. And he amassed so much material over the years that literally some of this stuff, well, most of this stuff is better than anybody has got in collections of the same age here in the UK. Incredible stuff. And it's all roughly about 150 million years old. And he, he and I, were, in this little video, we were going through his collection looking at sort of some of his fossils that tell stories of behavior. And, and you have ichthyosaur remains and pliosaur remains, quite literally, with uh, bite marks matching the kind of triangular-shaped tips of the tooth crowns of pliosaurs. So again, wow. you can you can play kind of dino, de- well, not necessarily dinosaur in this case, but dino detective, you marine know, fossil detective. detective. Right. Marine, not marine reptile detective. Yeah, <laughs> tell the expert. <laughs> We're a marine reptile uh, de- detective here, and you can work out exactly that they were feed how you know these animals were, were feeding on the ichthyosaurs and other pliosaurs just by the teeth. But this is locked in time moments. This yeah yeah we'll have this link. On yeah, our, it's a cool video. Uh, mm. Yeah. So you know, Dean, uh, one of the most classic fossil behavior moments is the uh, Velociraptor versus Protoceratops. Mm. And I was yeah. cover of the I'd book. always thought that that yep. had happened in uh, that Roy Chapman Andrews had uh, discovered that, but uh, it's been mm. known about for seems so long, but that only happened in like 1971. Can you describe that classic right. fossil to us? Yeah, so so that was found during a, an expedition to the Gobi Desert by a Polish and Mongol- Mongolian team. While searching for for dinosaur fossils for dinosaur eggs, they came across this well, two skeletons, two practically complete skeletons literally found fighting to their death. So you have Protoceratops in one corner, which is this earlier relative of, uh, of Triceratops. It Ceratopsian. Didn't have like, yeah, Ceratopsian. It didn't have the big brow horns, but it had a, a it had a frill on its on its neck. And it's, you know, it, it definitely fits into that family. It's quite a smaller body, about the size of, say, uh, maybe like a boar. So the boar-sized mm-hmm. um, Protoceratops. In the other corner, you have Velociraptor, which is, you know, the size of a turkey. <laughs> and you've got these, <laughs> not, not, not human size, right, so the right. size of a turkey. And you've got these fighting together. And it, to this day, is still one of the best fossils, in my opinion, up there in the top five best fossils ever discovered anywhere in the world. And, and this, it, it's even, it's a national treasure in Mongolia, you know, and, and quite rightly so. It's, it just captures... Again, that kind of that moment in time of these two animals locked in combat, where you've got the Protoceratops has got the, I think it's the right arm of the Velociraptor in its mouth, in its mouth. yeah, clamped yeah. down, like just below like, the like, elbow. Get off me! 
Yeah, right, right. And and then the the Velociraptor, which is kind of laying on its side, has got its uh, its infamous killing claw on its left leg held up really high, and that's in the throat oh, man. of the the throat region of the Protoceratops. And that is just like, can you imagine what what's the chance of that preserving in the fossil record? It's in- incredible. So to have these types of fossils, they they just tell so much about these animals in life. You can you can learn so much more. We know how they got preserved. Tell this tell the story of of how really the only way these two creatures would have died mid fight. Yeah. So there were a whole bunch of theories, and and people have kind of gone backwards and forwards on them. But the best is that a a sand dune collapsed above the pair. Perhaps it was triggered by, say, heavy heavy rains from a from a thunderstorm. And whilst they're in sort of mid fight, this sandstorm has just this has just triggered the uh, the sand dune to collapse, and it's just boom, covered them over. And then that's it, preserved. If you've ever been in a sand dune, you are immovable. You cannot move once you're uh, surrounded by this sand. Right. I've, I've played in the sand dunes in uh, Yuma, Arizona. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it's it's just a, a spectacular fossil. And to kind of epitomize the book and talking about behavior in prehistoric animals, it just had to be on the cover. And that was the reason why when we and Bob were talking about it, we was like... Pfft, Dude, if we're going to pick a fossil, it has, has to be to that, that one. one. It's a very iconic fossil, too. I yeah. saw it at the Natural History Museum in uh, New York. The American Museum in New York. Oh, did you? Did you? Oh, that's Did they so loan the weird. actual pair? <laughs> it was the actual, wasn't a cast. Oh, it was the real deal. This would have been in, in 2000. So I, I, it was a, a traveling exhibition. I would assume it's the real one. But if I was Mongolia, yep. I'd say it was real, but send a <laughs> uh, incredible reproduction. Now, the classic <laughs> fight that we all know, the ultimate one is T-Rex versus Triceratops. And there is, there is perhaps, it's not been totally mm. published yet or really uh, thoroughly studied. Is this the fighting the dinosaurs dueling dinos, or the dueling there, there is, And they are uh, out in, uh, is it North Carolina? Yeah, yeah, they are now, yeah. Yeah. So, which which ones is which? So so you've got the the fighting dinosaurs are the protoceratops, yeah, yeah, protoceratops and and velociraptor, and then the dueling dinosaurs are what's possibly a juvenile rex with a, what possibly maybe a triceratops. But... How childhood classic is is that? Yeah, right. T Rex and triceratops. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll get we'll yeah. get that crew on on the show sometime. But mm. I want to ask you about uh, SI. Oh what? yeah, yeah. What? SI Say is. Again? Something interesting. Smithsonian Institute. No, 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 what? no. SI means something <laughs> Science else. Science investigator. It means something else to our <laughs> guest today, Mr. Strassman. Dean has something interesting to talk about. Indeed. So SI is one of the most, if not the most famous sites at the Wyoming Dinosaur Center. And when they were exploring the local area, so before this was before the Wyoming Dinosaur Center became a thing, in the, the late 90s, I think it was, or mid, sorry, mid-90s, they were exploring the area. They knew it was, was famous for Morrison Formation fossils, so you could find dinosaurs like Allosaurus, Diplodocus, Camarasaurus. Whilst exploring, they, they came across this one site where you had bones of a sauropod, which turned out to be Camarasaurus, or the bones of another sauropod, which was a Patasaurus, and then loads of teeth of Allosaurus. And... Throughout that area, it was quite different to the usual kind of matrix that you get of uh, of the like the mudstony type matrix of the Morrison just formation. Jurassic. Yeah, so this is yeah this is late Jurassic Morrison formation again around about one hundred and fifty one hundred and fifty five million years ago, and they found this kind of really weird formation, which it turns out that it was 
where dinosaurs, specifically sauropods and some theropods, had been leaving their, their footprints in this kind of muddy region at the side of a lake. And after the museum was built and after they continued to excavate this, this site, which became known as something interesting simply because it was oh, something uh -huh. interesting. Very, uh, <laughs> very, very original, original yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I was lucky enough to excavate there in 2008, 9, 12, and 2019 most recently. And over the years, they'd exposed this, uh, this partial skeleton of a chimerosaurus, but it was, for want of a better term, it was ripped apart. This, this partial skeleton was ripped apart, and then scattered all around this skeleton were numerous teeth of, of allosaurs. So allosaurus, um, presumably, but ranging from, from adult allosaurus-sized teeth to, to young juveniles. And then on top of that, you also had footprints surrounding this, uh, this old carcass of this, uh, this sauropod. And then you even had, which is so cool, you had the impression of where the sauropod was lying in the matrix. So you actually have walking along the site, it's very straight. And then at this bit where you found the where they found the Camarasaurus skeleton, it's kind of dips wow. in where they think that's where the, the kind of heavier set portion of the, the kind of belly region would have been of this juvenile sauropod of this Camarasaurus. And so what you're looking at here is a feeding ground. Kill site. Yeah, it's a kill site. It's it's a it's a feeding ground, a kill site of these, these Allosaurus, which we're not sure whether they attacked and killed a young Chimerosaurus as a group or whether young Chimerosaurus kind of died, you know, of what, whatever other reason, there could be another cause. And then independently kind of, you know, a bunch of Allosaurus just rocked up. But it makes more sense considering that we haven't found any Allosaurus bones. Uh, we found in only this exact same layer, all these teeth from adults and juveniles, that it was a massive feeding frenzy. You just had these Allosaurus just... Yeah, ripping away at this sad carcass of this juvenile uh, chimerosaurus. It's all death-related, of course. Back to death again, Back to death again, you know. But uh, but ripping away at this this juvenile chimerosaurus. And you've got even scratch marks in the sediment where you've got the Allosaurus with its foot scratching the sediment too. It's such a such a unique sight. And that wow. was one, again, which I had to include in, in Locked In well, Time. Well, I think that's what's so extraordinary. Wait, where does SI come from? SI. Something interesting. Something interesting. David, but, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the, very wait, original. wait, since your last wait, don't you have a last your last chapter is about is a is a mishmash of stuff, right? Last yeah, chapter yeah, yeah. gets sort of scatological, but uh, oh, that's the right, one thing right. I, I want to point out is that it is so extraordinary to actually find you never you usually don't find it's uh, bones and tracks yeah. in the same. That's so this is right, a really yeah. exceptional site where both are preserved. Yeah. It's usually one or the other. To get them side by side like that is is pretty obvious that that is true. the case yeah it's true it's truly unique to have that and and i remember the first time seeing that and then obviously subsequently seeing that and and reading there's a paper published on that site by deborah jennings who led the research on that and then over the years there's been comments referring back to that research and then obviously i include it in locked in time because it's such a it's such a cool find it's very rare incredibly rare to have as you say, kind of dino tracks preserved with bones and teeth in the same same sediment. So, is there uh, a teeth impressions that relate to the allosaurus? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, as well. So, good good point, though. So, not only do we have the scratch marks, we also have bite marks on some of these bones, uh, which which again match the allosaurus uh, allosaurus teeth. Wow! So you have all that the evidence. So there. cool. So this this time it actually is you can be you know dino csi <laughs> so yeah no yeah. that is so cool you know actually I'm, I'm thinking dave has asked me my favorite he's talked about his favorite story dean what's your favorite story in the book and you can't say the horseshoe crab and you can't right. say We've the dueling dinosaurs <laughs> and you can't say the megatherium and you can't say and i can't I, you know what's the, the, the other, other one, one would have been the 
Yeah, the other one would have been the the Clash of the Mammoths, but of course you covered that too. Well, wait, wait, <laughs> oh, oh, wait a minute. There's, I'll bet there will be a volume two because I I saw on one of your interviews you originally decided to do a hundred locked in time stories, mm. but that was just too much, so you pared it down to fifty, yep. which means. You have 50 other candidates. Yeah, I do, actually. Probably a lot more than that. There's quite a few because I, I I kind of went so deep into the literature with looking for cool fossils of behavior. I came up with so many like obscure finds and I was like, wow, how do we not know about this? You know, what a, what a cool discovery. And so, yeah, there's a whole lot more. But I think from the book, I would probably have to say, uh, you know, it's a, quite a, a random one. And, and a lot of people listening to this will... will Probably quite shocked by by this as a discovery, <laughs> but it, but it's the the giant the giant clams, so Platyceranus ah, oh, clams, right. which are found sort of in, ca- with in the Kansas, fish. With the fish. yeah, with, Actually, with the fish, in yeah, Kansas, so you, man, yeah, raised down the street. Go and find some, Ray. <laughs> yeah, that, it's it, it's such a cool find. So you have these gigantic kind of meter and a half meter to possibly even up to two meters wide giant clams, Platyceranus, and inside them. You have uh, you have fish. So in some cases, you have well over a hundred hundred tiny fish preserved inside the clams. And what the idea is is that when these clams were kind of open in life, the fish, just like modern day ecosystems, you could look at kind of coral reefs and things where they you know would either hide inside for shelter from predators. They'd make homes inside some of these. They'd also sometimes feed on there and sort of on detritus and things that get trapped. But then in this case, these fish that were were in there <laughs> sadly got trapped. And and they died in there. So what you've got, you've got these giant clams. You've got the little fish in there, which have been swimming in and out, in and out, you know, possibly even mating inside the, the clams as well. But then, for for instance, it isn't a case, I should just point out, it's not these clams. They're not eating the fish. They, um, they've probably even been buried again by some sort of sediment. So it could be an under... You know, something, something underwater. It could be like an underwater tsunami or whatever. It could be something drastic like that that's covered them. Or, most likely, is that the... The clams had died, but they're, they're, they were still kind of left partly open. And so the fish could still swim in and out. And so as the fish are kind of feeding on the, de- the decaying dead, uh, dead polysopods, <laughs> you've then got it's closed shut on the, uh, these fish. Go ahead, <laughs> I, have a, I have another theory. Mm. I have seen giant clams in the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, I've seen clams that are four feet wide. And mm. the crazy thing is, is that they can't open very far. They can close yeah. shut, but they only open uh, maybe seven or eight inches. And we're talking about four-foot-wide, five-foot-wide clams. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the fish do swim in and out. But imagine this. Imagine a bunch of fish go in, and for some reason, low tide happens, and it stays low tide, and the clam dries out. But inside the fish, because those fish in the fossil are bunched together. Yeah. So imagine, imagine the water, the seawater, imagine the... The low tide going out, hot sun, uh, it, it dies, and the water inside slowly evaporates, and it would leave one last little pool where the fish would either die or, or suffocate, well, and and that's how that could possibly could have. Well, happened. a lot of these are coming from the deep water. Well, the six hundred foot deep water. These, these are some of the root. Are they? Yes. There goes my theory. Yes. So <laughs> it, oh, so they're they're deep water well, clams. Well, they're, they're deepish. Our good friend <laughs> Chuck Bonner has actually has a number of these fossils with the uh, the fish inside. We had one in really? our display last year down at the Sternberg. And these are the rudest clams ever. 
That's a joke. He, oh, what do they? What do they insult you all the time? Ray? Well, uh, Dean knows he gets the joke. There's a type of clam that's they were called yeah. the rudists. It's a rudist. But they, uh, the theory is that they actually stood kind of vertically in the water uh, on the bottom, and they would open up slightly. And some of these got six and maybe even like maybe even nine feet, three meters tall, like these gigantic. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so this, and then every now and then, one would just fall over. You know, so imagine these things, and then everything is fossilized. All the fish are trapped within. That's one of the theories, but oh. Mm. Oh. but yeah, they are. Some of these these clams are just enormous. But that's that's really interesting. That's one of your well, more uh, exciting finds there. You know, but yeah, there, there are there are so many stories in this book. The uh, dinosaur sex dance. I love. So wait, wait, I hold, love, on, hold on, hold so on. I love is the, the clam your favorite? No, the, the clam isn't my favorite. So my favorite would be it'd be a toss up between the Clash of the Mammoths and the Horseshoe Crab. But the the clam is it's up there just because it's quite different and it's it's something which a lot of people not you know in paleontology, especially getting the kind of big big headlines, it's usually dinosaurs and things. So I think I, I like the idea of these clams and the fish getting trapped in there. It's and it's very relatable. You can see again, you can watch a documentary or you can go scuba diving and see these. You know, today, little fish going in and, in and out of clams and things. I, I like that, that you can make it something that's very, very real. I love some of the titles. Uh, obviously, you guys had a lot of fun coming up with titles and, and images to do, <laughs> but the dinosaur sex dance, you start out the book with with that, what's what's a dinosaur sex dance, man? <laughs> yeah, we uh, we had to get that up there right right towards the beginning. Of Haven't the book, you so seen that... a bird of paradise, Ray? Something, but you know, I, this is a fossilized uh, dinosaur sex dance. It's kind of interesting. Got my attention. Yeah, yeah oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, this is what we call lecking. So in mod- many modern day kind of ground nesting birds, they do this this thing called lecking, where they where males kind of congregate together and they they effectively dance to try and impress the onlooking females. And so they'll dance around, they'll scrape the, the surface, show that they are strong individuals, that. show that they can... Time, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I get it. Yeah, you're peacocking, right? <laughs> so so, so they, they, they can do that. And, and they show that they can also build nests and things. And then whoever has the, the best abilities usually would win the, the affection of the female. So there's some very large scrapes that were found in Colorado that are, again, this time we're going back a bit further than the Jurassic, so this is cut sort of uh, Cretaceous-aged material, and it's it's to do with, um, there's a famous site called the Dinosaur Freeway or Dinosaur Ridge. There's one of the tracks that's found there. And at the side of, of big theropod tracks, so we're talking theropods that were probably about six metres long, so again, good-sized theropods, not quite as big as sort of T-Rex or something, but, you know, big-sized animals. And you've got intermingled with these tracks, these these scrape marks, and for some time, nobody could quite work out exactly what they were. And then a team of paleontologists, they'd found multiple sites with these scrape marks, again, intermingled with, with normal kind of standard, you know, three-toed theropod tracks. And the only thing that it kind of adds up to is, is that it must be some sort, of, uh, some sort of lecking ground that is so comparable when you look at the modern-day lecking of, of modern-day uh, ground, ground-nesting birds. And as, as David... You like cassowaries and... Yeah, things like cassowaries and things. So, so other other kind of ground nesting birds as well that would um, would would put on these shows. The idea behind it is that they they literally had these giant theropods doing the same thing. So, of course, we know that birds are dinosaurs. I always want to drill that into people. You know, birds are dinosaurs. So, 
we can look to modern day dinosaurs to look at the behaviors. So if you're looking at the these modern species that are are lacking to impress the the opposite member of the sex. Well, you see you see pigeons doing it all the time, you know. But that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So so you know you you find many different birds today doing this sort of thing to try and impress the opposite sex. So you know why not in the in in the fossil record? So by looking at the the track sites and looking at these scrape marks and then putting two and two together by looking at modern day scrape marks, you effectively have this kind of dancing dinosaur <laughs> sex session that's happening back during the, the Cretaceous. And so Were there nests nearby or, or? Yes. Yeah, so, so the idea is that what would happen and what happens in generally in, in, in modern species, if you have this kind of lecking happen and then the, the couple would go away, mate and then build a nest in this, in the, examples from Colorado, they didn't find any nests nearby. But that's not to say that they weren't there. It might just be that the environment was slightly, you know, might have been upland or something like that. So the lecking itself, they wouldn't have happened, they wouldn't have lecked, and then in, in exactly the same area, gone and built a nest. They would have moved on slightly away from that to build to build their nest. But, you know, I think it's a, a really fascinating study, again, because you, you don't get the, unfortunately on this occasion, you don't have the dinosaur dancing <laughs> to its death. <laughs> it's not preserved there, and it's de- dead. Dead. These scrapes are huge. They are the massive. Scrape, They're yeah, but the, five feet long and five feet wide. Yeah. So th- these are these are huge, and as I say, they're they're produced by a really big theropod dinosaur. So you can imagine what it must have been like if you could have witnessed something like that. Uh, the, the noises that must have been made, the <laughs> you know the show that was put on, especially if these theropods were were feathered as well, which they may well have been as were many, many theropods. So you can imagine some of the courtship displays. It must have been quite the, quite the scene. Yeah, that, I, this, whether or not you like, you're liking the lecking. Hmm. Well, Bob Nichols' yeah. painting yep. is brilliant yeah. in that. Uh, oh, it yeah. shows these, it really is well done uh, because it's a view from close to the ground so you can see the, the scale. But in the very back is uh, the female sitting there, unimpressed. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> do your best. Yeah, that's but it. how do we know? How do we know they're not scraping the ground for food? So there, there's a couple ideas with that. So in the environment in which they that these are all found, there was various studies done to see if it was um, if there was anything actually found in the vicinity. Is there any other fossils around there? One, they discounted that. They didn't find anything in the environment. So there was nothing in, preserved on the mammal burrow? Because if yeah, I no. want to get to a mammal for a beautiful little lunch, uh, I'd yeah. be uh, scraping the ground Scra- with my three ground, toes. Right? Yeah, so there was nothing there. They didn't find anything like that. And then also the environment in which it was in was, um, if memory served me correct, I think it was like a, uh, almost like a riverbed system. So that, again, it, it would have been almost certainly kind of flooded at some point too. So obviously, well, it must have been in, in order to preserve it. Right. So there was nothing physically living living in there. And there's also no feeding traces. So if you were scraping the sediment and then you were finding food, there's nothing in there from the teeth or, or anything else to suggest it's then caught something it's and, a show and off got kind of episode traces so. i think it's it's so kind funny. of funny that you end the book with eurolites a eurolite <laughs> that is what is a, yeah, it what is yeah. a eurolite yeah i never heard of that until i read your and this spectacular right? illustration oh it's wonderful yeah. but uh what's yeah. a eurolite so eurolites are fossilized p traces <laughs> try not to laugh i just did I'm <laughs> literally sorry. they yeah. are well, yeah we could yeah, say yeah. By the way, do you say urine or urine? I would say urine. But because in Australia they say urine. Urine. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say urine, but then over here 
depending on different dialects, you'll get Urine as well. Well, in Eng- yeah, the English pronunciation is Urine. Uh, the American yeah. is always ruined, but go on. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you've got these Uralites, which are fossilized P traces. And again, you've probably got listeners thinking, what? Fossilized P? How does that even happen? And and so so there are multiple examples that have been found of Uralites. And mm. the couple that I talk about in the in the book, one in particular which was described at a conference, I think it was SVP conference, Society of Vertebrate Paleontology conference some years ago now, was described as sort of a bathtub-shaped depression that was in an environment, again, with lots of tracks. So you had trackways of sauropods, there were some theropod tracks on the, at the site, but then that's it. There's no, there's, there's no kind of indication of, let's say, a tree where, say, water could have dropped off a tree or there could have been, I don't know, some sort of waterfall. The only thing dispersed in between these footprints is this large kind of what you would just say a splattering of water oh. on the, the same sediment of the, the footprints. Is and there then, evidence of hydrological movement, uh, uh, you know, of the ground being pushed away, like when the, you yeah, pee real hard? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah ex- exactly that, exactly that. So, so in fact, one of the studies that focused on one of the best Uralites from, from South America, this one is super cool because... <laughs> so, so they looked at modern... <laughs> Talk super cool fossilized pea. So we're talking about that. And they looked at, uh, at ostriches, and so when ostriches pee... They come out like it's a real like quick jet stream, and so when that hits the the sediment, it creates a little kind of depression, and then it sort of splits over to the side. And they had uh, you had the same. You, you can kind of imagine it a bit like uh, like an asteroid impact. It uh-huh. hits the, hits the surface, and it leaves this depression, and, and it's kind of all the debris at the side uh, coming wow. off of it. That's the same thing that they found in this fossilized uralite. So you had the the ostrich pee analogy, looking at the uralite, which is then found at the same area where we've got all these dinosaur footprints what else could it be it makes sense these dinosaurs had to pee right so why, why not comparative urine and just imagine the <laughs> geyser coming out of a giant sauropod a hundred foot long beast just like letting loose whoa <laughs> well i i have to say as a kid i went to the la zoo every saturday as a volunteer when i was i don't know 12 years old and the first time i saw an elephant urinate I was shocked at the volume and the and the pressure behind it. And that was just an elephant. So imagine a sauropod. Oh yeah. Would have been uh, you you'd want to get be out of his way. You, I wonder if they could yeah. use that, it that like a what... weapon or something, you know? Knock somebody down. For sure. Is there yeah. any evidence of uh, urea in these uh or is that, that wouldn't preserve? Yeah, there, there's no to my knowledge there's Chemical no evidence analysis. for that. Yeah, right. yeah, there's no evidence for that. But, I mean, there would uh, be a lot of it. You'd think about it, you know, there'd be a lot oh, yeah. of it. Yeah, de- definitely. Which, thinking of that, and just going back to your point about it being a, you know, used as a weapon of some sort, the pee, Dino P as a weapon, for at least for the big sauropods, like like Bob illustrated in the book, we've got a big uh, big sauropod taking a, taking a giant jet stream whiz, and <laughs> these little dinosaurs underneath ah! are just scampering. Yeah, yeah literally just like, scampering out. away, because... As you just said, David, if you've got, say, an elephant, compare that. If it hit a tiny, you know, if you're talking a 100-foot sauropod or something and a tiny, you know, a tiny dinosaur, maybe no longer than 50 centimeters. You're talking fire hose. Yeah, you're talking fire. It's it's probably going to kill the animals. (laughs) You don't want to get too close. All right, gentlemen, this has been great. This has been great. Do you want to go ahead and ask your question? I'm going to ask my question. Or do you have any more? No, no, no. I think we've we've got it. But, hey, Dean, (laughs) if you could time travel back to the past. 
Can't go into the future. What exciting epoch, what paleo period, what awesome, astounding age would you want to go back to? And what fantastic fauna would you want to see? Ooh, I only would one, have only to one. say, only well, one. one, one okay, let me... You could go back to one C. Okay, okay, fair enough. Let me have let me have one and a half. One is actually not too long ago. Oh, yeah. So if it was like a human side of things, it would be to go back to the very first time that, that Mary Anning and her brother Joseph found an ichthyosaur. Mm -hmm. oh, Just wow. simply from the fact, yeah. So this is 1811. That would be such a cool moment to see because this is before, well, before they were a thing, right? So right. imagine finding a, a massive eye like the size of a football, a soccer ball, and kind of stare because that's what they found staring back at them I, I just wanted to i would love to see what kind of emotions they had were they shocked what did they think it was something like from the bible or you know it'd be so cool but from a from a perspective of a time period i would have to say it would be the early jurassic so i'd love to go back to the kind of the the primeval jurassic seas where you've got the these ichthyosaurs like temnodontosaurus gets up to sort of 12 meters you've got it's kind of the heyday to, to in many respects for ichthyosaurs but also on land you've got a lot of cool dinosaurs as well so that would have to be for me going back to the early jurassic because although i'm an ichthyosaur expert of course you know i'm a fan of all fossils obviously a big fan of dinosaurs uh, but it would have to be going yeah early jurassic seeing the the Jurassic Seas, seeing the cool ichthyosaurs there, seeing some of the big pliosaurs, and then the dinosaurs walking on land. So that would that would be it for me. You know, I just keep imagining what what it must have been like to see, you know, some of these, uh, like an ichthyosaurus just leaping, you know, like dolphins yeah. do in the yeah. sun. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. it's amazing is how they their body plan occupies the niche. That is almost exactly like a dolphin or porpoise or killer whale. Marlin. It's very similar. Very much like a marlin, too. <laughs> yeah, it's true yeah. with that with the long snout. They were all meat eaters. There weren't any ichthyosaurs that were filter feeders, correct? Yeah, no, they were, they were correct. There were big, no, no, big filter feeding ichthyosaurs. What? Really? Not necessarily. So there's some idea that some of them were like sort of filter feeding, kind of I guess like whales, but not not quite. Well, Ray. So that that's kind okay. of. Go ahead. Well, no, I, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. I said, no, 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 I thought they were like the big shonosaurs. Maybe some of them didn't uh, even have teeth and they were just big open mouth. Yeah. So so, so that it's it's kind of odd. So for quite some time, there was an idea that shonosaurus and the, that's the one found up in British Columbia. That's right. Yeah. British Columbia. So shonosaurus is it, called shonosaurus decaniensis mm -hmm. is the big one found in British Columbia. It's in situ when it was found. It's 21 meters long. So this is the the biggest ichthyosaur skeleton found anywhere in the world. This animal and all of the kind of that group of Shasta swords has always been kind of, well, some of them were thought to be predators. Then it came along and thought that they, oh, they were just kind of not apex predators. They were filter feeders. But then that's kind of been disproven over the years. And in fact, animals like Shonisaurus, although Sicaniensis is only known from one specimen and it's missing the bit where you would have all the teeth mm -hmm. primarily in the jaws, some of the other Shonosaurus from uh, from Nevada. There's a there's a place called Nevada State oh, Park, yes. and and the yeah, Berlin you, site. I, I've never been there. Yeah, yeah. that's that right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Berlin State Park in Nevada. So I've never been there. Although I've looked at the material, read through the the the, the papers online, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, as part of my academic research, and some of that material, they actually do have teeth and quite big teeth as oh. well. And it seems that it's yeah. So it seems for some reason, kind of like the popular realms. Ichthyosaurs, the big ones, were kind of cast to one side of saying, oh, some of these big ones just had, um, were, were toothless. And they were either filter feeders or just sort of suction feeders or some, in some capacity. But um, as it turns out, 
some of these really big ones definitely did have teeth and i imagine especially like the big shonosaurus would have been you know mega predators so oh, they, really? they wouldn't have been filter feeders. yeah really yeah so there's some new research that i've um i say i've worked on as well not necessarily on the teeth side of things but i uh, i described the one i mentioned very early on in this um in this chat about the a, a team of mine we worked on describing a giant jawbone, which I actually do have oh, a, a mini right. version of that yeah. jawbone in front of me here. <laughs> the very mini version, scaled down version. And that was of an individual that was probably 25 meters. So then you're looking at 30 meters. So, I mean, these are gigantic predators. And so the filter feeder angle is definitely something that's, that's kind of going away now. But they, Is that they because of the uh, evidence of the teeth? Right, because they but, didn't yeah. have the teeth back then to to make those. Theories. Well, this is interesting yeah. because, as you know, I've been drawing uh, these giant ichthyosaurs because we found them in Southeast Alaska in the Triassic rocks. There, in fact, right on Gravina Island, right across from Ketchikan, the the ribs. Where you and I have still yet to go back. We to will that go back to that, that, and we'll we'll look some more. Let's let's bring Dean along, and uh, we'll find some more, that. and yeah. we'll uh, also meet yeah, you in, in uh, the Berlin uh, Park. And look at those. But, but what do the giant fish and mammals, the extant ones today, eat? They all eat... Well, the really giant ones are krill. And, and, yeah, they eat the small creatures. Small fish. Yeah, I mean, this is this is true. And this is why it's quite interesting, because obviously you've got to look at them from their reptiles, of course, right? So you've got to think of them, they're different uh, to, to mammals, fish as well. So there's a whole bunch of different things. I mean, don't get me wrong, there might there may well be some that... that well, definitely there's some of them were... Or some that have been found that were toothless may not have necessarily been toothless throughout their entire lives. It could be a thing, an age thing, right? So it could well be that as juveniles, they have a certain tooth shape, tooth morphology, and as they get older, although reptiles constantly replace their teeth, sometimes they get to a point where it takes a lot longer to replace them. Right. So at the end of their life and their their large size, they'd be gumming to death an ammonite. Yeah, kind of, because there's uh, there was a study done, there was quite a few studies now done on, with an early Jurassic ichthyosaur called Stenopterygius, that as a youngster, or as like a sub-adult, they have a slightly different tooth shape to what they have when they get older, and the teeth become less um, less numerous and much smaller, to a point where some of the Stenopterygius become toothless. Wow. So it's, yeah, so it's quite interesting to look at it from, from that perspective. And, and, and as I said kind of early on, and we touched upon at the beginning, I, I like to bring it back to the, the sort of science and research, because although, you know, with my work as a paleontologist, I, I you know, I guess I'm privileged to work um, on in, in academia, but at field work, uh, you know, I also do a lot of public engagement stuff and obviously writing books, but the, the research and the science is where a big part of my work's been over the years now for like the last... Well, it'll be 13 years going on, 13 years working primarily in paleo, but but doing research and, and lots on ichthyosaurs. So in doing that, it's been a privilege to, yeah, describe so many ichthyosaurs, study so many, like I mentioned earlier, thousands and thousands of, of ichthyosaurs. And, and so... Well, we should revisit you again and, yeah, and just talk yeah. ichthyosaurs. Well, we... Yeah, maybe that's it. We managed to squeeze <laughs> a bunch of ichthyosaurs into this. Uh, and I learned yeah. something about ichthyosaurs today. So thank you very much for that, Dean. And, yeah. and David, I think, is... Ready to ask the big, yeah. the big question, Dean? Well, it's not so big. Well, maybe it's, it's uh, always profound, man. Come on, get profound. Yeah, this is a bit profound. But um, before I ask it, I just want to say that if I were to go back in time, and I've said this before, I want to see under a microscope that first inorganic molecule or soap bubble yeah. turn into organic life. I want to see that very moment. And, and so that's a moment in time. It's locked in time. Yeah. Yeah. As a child, it was seeing a robin dead in the La Brea tar pits. And that's what I went, well, there's a moment locked in time. 
And yeah. so that that's what turned me on to to uh, paleontology and and deep time. So my question to you is, what would you like to see locked in time if you were to go 65 million years from now? What do you think a future paleontologist would find if the human race uh, it still exists, which it won't? But <laughs> what would you like to find besides the trillions of plastic nanoparticles? <laughs> and that's a, that is a great question. Hmm. I mean, there's so many different things I could uh, could come up with this, but let's let's think. Have you thought of this? Have you thought of I, the future? You, Probably not. No, not future so much. Fossils. I'm living in the past always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Future fossils. It's funny though. Talking on future fossils, and I'll bring this round to answer the question. Maybe is because of uh, the human impact of um, you know how how it's kind of like raising cattle and you know, livestock and things. So and how animals have been introduced in different areas. So when you look at this, is one thing I've thought about a bit. When you look at the future and potential future fossils, we're going to have a false representation of what the real fossil record was like, right? From from animals being introduced in different environments, from livestock. So very likely, the, the future fossil record is going to be full of, say, you know, cattle, full of chickens, things like things like that. And, it, and you're going to have animals that are not native to an environment which have been introduced by, by humans. But, but so there I, will be a gradation, though. You'll see pre-industrial to industrial agriculture. I mean, there'll be that yeah. gradient. So yeah, I don't yeah. think it'll be a surprise to the future paleontologists. But but of, what is the trippiest, weirdest thing that you'd like to see 65 million years from now uh, that would represent a, a moment in time from our our extant age? <laughs> you, you got me stumped on this. I got. I got to say, well, I've never about, given this some thought. Could, could yeah, be a 1956 yeah. Chevy engine. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Fossilized, right? I, I yeah. Um, I think from from a perspective, are we talking sort of from animals, right? So, I think if we can look at animals today and then look, yeah, 65 million years in the future, if they're preserved, I think it would be really cool to have some some evidence of say you know that one of my favorite places to to read about although i've still not been there i'd love to go is kind of like the african savannah and to have that kind of ecosystem preserved where you have the elephants and you've got the lions and you've got that great wildebeest migration to have something like that preserved in the fossil record which were you know if we go back kind of to the cretaceous you do have ceratopsians preserved in mass bone beds and things i'd love to have something like that so the african savannah style of 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 kind of um, flora and fauna preserved kind of en masse. So kind of like Ashfall, Ray mentioned about Ashfall fossil beds, which is obviously another one in Locked in Time. I'd love to have that kind of, that kind of preservation encapsulated for the, the African savannah. You know, the fact that the African savannah still exists today as we are talking kind of gives us hope that we haven't destroyed it all. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, hopefully, you know, I doubt that will, well, that won't be here in 65 million years, but at least in fossil form, perhaps it, perhaps it will be. Oh. But I find that that would be pretty cool because you have then the entire ecosystem of animals. You've got the predators and the prey and just like, like Ashfall. Not, not a bunch of automobiles from Los Angeles, I think, but. Uh, <laughs> no, definitely not. I hope not. That's what I prefer not to have. Or three guys with headphones, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Bring it around. <laughs> yeah, around, that but... too. Hey, Dean, yeah. this has been really a lot of fun, man. It's, it's so good to finally meet you and do, uh, to hang out with you here for, um, well, the last hour or so and talk to Nikki yeah. Soros. And, and oh, before things, we go, yeah. before we go, Dean, uh, you mentioned that I'm here with Dean Lomax. Oh, and right. He does impressions. I'm, I'm standing on a mountainside 
So you do impressions. Uh-oh, uh, get ready. You said, get ready. Yeah, so do you have, mm. you said you could do one? Okay, so I'll probably do two. Let's see how I'm feeling with this. So first of all, Dina's a stupid paleontologist. He isn't very good, is he? Go on. What is that? Go on. Go on. It's fantastic. <laughs> My precious, that's fantastic. Wow, very good. Stupid thing. Very good. Hey, Dean, thanks a lot, man. We'll see you some other time, I hope. Yeah, I hope so. No, it's been a, a real pleasure chatting to the, to the two of you. It's, yeah, it's uh, been it's fun and inspirational. Really, really, it's been great. We'll see you in old Blighty. <laughs> Definitely. Well, that was great. You know, it felt like he was an old friend. Yeah, you know, of. I don't know. We're just like, you just click with people sometimes, man. And I thought we really clicked. Uh, we both are fans, genuine fans of the book. And uh, yeah, the book that yeah. Dean... It's a great book. Yeah. You you listeners, you have to read this book, Locked in Time. You know, I, I read it on my iPad and the, the pictures, you know, show up and it's just brilliant. Well, are they in color on the iPad? Yes, of course they are. An iP- it's an iPad, Ray. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, and not only are they in color, but you can pinch and zoom in. And see even more detail, something you can't do with your old eyes on a book. <laughs> yeah, well, I love tangible things. So maybe they were just saving money and then so it's black and white in the printed version. So I know. Well, we'll I don't want tangible things. Well, I'm sorry, but books are sacred to me, Dave. And tangible books. I love my okay. library. I love touching the I paper. Get it. I love all that. And, you know, so I'm going to be the old diehard where you, I, I love books. Actual books. In defense of you and that, I'm going to say a little funny story. Okay. In, in 1990, someone came out and said, this new thing, which has been around for about eight years, is called a CD, CD-ROM, and it is this disc of metallic crystals that can record over 250,000 books on one disc. And how long will it last? I said, well... This will probably last possibly nine, maybe 15 years of data storage before the oxide deteriorates and makes the CD unreadable. And the other person on the other end of this discussion said, well, we have something that lasts for up to 5,000 years. And they went, what? What What was that? What is it? It's paper. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when the... Big uh, electronic burst, whatever, you know, from the nuclear bomb that destroys everything. The EMP. The EMP the destroys it all, and all the cars pulse. go dead and all that. I'll still have my books, man. So, But, yeah, no, I understand. I understand. I get where you're coming from. The planet's in crisis. But, anyways, back to talking with Gene. It was, it was a great interview. And, actually, what was fun is you saw... You saw Rachel learning about ichthyosaurs in this one. I'm an ichthyosaur geek. Well, it's not that you are learning. Is that we all have our, our we dive into research and we and we understand something to be a certain way. And obviously, him being one of the world's leading experts on ichthyosaurs, yeah. he's going to know. He's going to know this data point that we didn't know or you well, didn't that, know. That was so, cool because I like finding these these experts, and there really is only a handful of ichthyosaur experts in the world, and. And what is cool about Dean is he actually started out, follow what he was talking about in his life story. He was finding fossils as a kid, and England yeah. is a fossil-rich place. I know? know. it's For such a tiny country, it is it has everything. Yeah, it's got the all that sea. great Jurassic yeah. stuff, the Jurassic yeah. Coast. And so. the coal mines. Oh, it's incredible. But anyway, great episode, Ray. and uh, Fun, as uh, always. And uh, we've made a new friend, Dave. 
Yeah, so. we made a new friend. I mean, I want to walk those. If, by the way, if you Google or YouTube uh, these paleontologists walking along the coast, the Jurassic coast or the Yorkshire coast, there are it's littered with ammonite pieces and parts. And who's the uh, the ammonite hunter that? Uh, yeah, he goes Steve out? Etches. It's the Etches collection. But I got to say, it was fun watching the videos of uh, Steve out finding. Uh, ammonites yeah. along the coast so it's actually you yeah. can spend hours with them online looking for yeah. ammonites but what a great interview we'll have Dave. links we'll have links to those videos yeah. on uh dean lomax's dr dean's dr. website dr dean lomax our new friend all right well signing off from a beautiful beautiful blue sky as usual day with no rain we are in a water emergency all the cities and states including mexico along the colorado river are in emergency water situation. Mm. So uh, sorry to hear that. Buy those water stocks. Well, uh, signing off for beautiful Lindsborg, Kansas, Little Sweden, USA, where it's suddenly kind of chilly today. Autumn is in the air, and the oh. and the leaves are starting to turn. Happy equinox! Oh, the Earth is tilting the other way. Is it? It's the autumnal equinox. Ah. Autumnal, autumnal. How do you say that? Autumnal, and I uh, here I am. In the autumn of my life, Dave, my golden That's years. Right. So, and you know what? You more than me. <laughs> On that happy Bye, note, see you later, Dave. See you later, buddy. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time.